Joshua chapter 1, and we are in a series called Conquering Canaan. Just began it last week, and so if you're joining us, uh, you're not that far behind. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time anyways, you're not that far behind. We, have, uh, we covered the first nine verses of Joshua last week, uh, looking at sort of the introduction to the book and the history of what was going on, and it uh, naturally falls in your Bible right after the books of Moses, as in the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, Joshua is basically a book that is the historical account of the nation of Israel going from the wilderness experience, where they spent about 40 years there, into the land that God had promised them uh, way back through Abraham. And uh, it is that actual historical you know, reference to what took place with also, the, I think, and that's what we're looking at, is the practical application for all believers and it is really about conquering. And uh, as we sang earlier, victory in Jesus, uh, there is a victory that is found in following the Lord. And he, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more today. Um, and last week we looked at the call of Joshua and we looked at the circumstances of the nation as they came into the land. And today we're going to look at the last part of this chapter, in chapter 1, looking at the challenges that lay ahead. And by the way, there's always challenges for us. Uh, there's some things that we can know are coming, and then there's things that we are experiencing currently that could be challenges. But there are some things we don't know that are coming. And that was indeed true with Joshua, who was the next in line from Moses. When Moses dies, Joshua becomes the, his successor and is the one who God would use to lead his people into the land of Canaan. And Joshua didn't realize all the challenges that were ahead. And sometimes we stand or, uh, on that edge of sort of our life experiences wondering, what is next? What is next? And I would just say we're no different than Joshua in many ways in that we have the same God and we can trust him to know the path and the steps that we must take. And he directs those things. And we're going to pick it up today again. We're going to actually start in verse 9. This is where we left off last week. We'll read down through to verse 18. Joshua chapter 1, verse 9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the camp and command the people, saying, Prepare provisions for yourselves, for within three days you will cross over this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua spoke, saying, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is giving you rest and is giving you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land which... Moses gave you on this side of Jordan, but you shall pass before your brethren armed, all your mighty men of valor, and help them, until the Lord has given your brethren rest, as he gave you, and they also have taken possession of the land which the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and enjoy it which Moses, the Lord's servant, gave you on this side of the Jordan toward the sunrise. So they answered Joshua, saying, 
All that you command us, we will do. And whatever you or wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we heeded Moses in all things, so we will heed you. Only the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your command and does not heed your words in all that you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and of a good courage. Lord, we open your word once again. We're thankful for it. Thankful for this account of the book of Joshua. Pray, Lord, now you would instruct us as only you can. And Lord, write in our hearts that you would meet those needs and the challenges that we face and help us to be victorious in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we're looking at this again, we're looking at the challenges ahead. And there are three challenges found in this section of the book of Joshua. And the very first one was a challenge of readiness. And I think that's a a huge challenge for all of us. We are to be ready people. We are the people that should be most ready, uh, if you're a follower of Christ, the most ready to, well, uh, be into his presence and go through this life expecting uh, the Lord to do things in our life and all those things. And he says here, uh, back there in the beginning of this section, he told them to basically get ready. And he says, have I not commanded you be strong and of a good courage? That was verse 9. And then he gives them instruction, verse 10, saying this, all right, pass through the camp and command the people saying, prepare provisions for yourself, for within three days you will cross over this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And then he instructs the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh, two and a half Uh, tribes or clans or families that were gathered there out of the 12 in um, uh, of Israel and they you have to kind of set the stage a little bit about that is because uh, way back in the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy we realized that and we'll we'll come to that verse and look at it that there was this idea of uh, from those tribes that they saw the land to the east of Jordan the place where they actually were dwelling at the time it was good for livestock, and they wanted that land. And Moses actually rebuked them, saying that they were being disobedient, and that they would, if they remained in that land, they didn't go in and conquer in Canaan. And you will look that up and, and see what that says there. But basically, they made an oath to God and through Moses that they would fight alongside their brethren. And they would do that. And so this is the historical account of that very dealing that was taking place. And we'll see more of it. But that would definitely be quite a challenge. But there was a challenge to be ready. It's interesting in our text, it said that they were to dwell there for three days. He says, make provisions, and in three days you will cross over Jordan. Now, the number three in Scripture often is connected with well, a few things, but one of them being a unity or a triunity. You'll notice there are a number of, of threes that are coupled with a number of fullness or completion, including you have the Trinity in itself, a term that isn't a biblical term necessarily, but it's a descriptive term of the unity of the Godhead, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Triune, and there are three in one. Uh, you have a picture also of a completion act when Jesus dies on the cross. Three days he's raised up and he's victorious over death. And we see that. I think the Jordan, and we talked about this last week, the Jordan River, this 
great river at this time of year in the harvest of the barley time it was a time where the um, latter rains fell and the Jordan according to the description in Joshua's time was overflowing its banks and it was something that humanly speaking was impossible to cross uh, and by the way the children of Israel didn't haul around boats with them for 40 years you know they were on foot and they were there and they are looking at this great river that's overflowing its banks and God tells Joshua make sure you tell these guys to make provisions for in three days they're going to pass over it well we're to be ready by the way and three in that case I think is also symbolic of of dying in, in a sense the Jordan River represented death it was an impossible feat to cross without the aid of God and it was a place where they had to come up and for three days they stared down that river and they looked at it and I think if there were any doubts about how you would cross or any any maybe uh, I would say the opposites of those things any confidence that somehow man could do it you know we will we'll build a bridge well you're not going to build it in three days right we know how long it takes to build a bridge right we got one being built here and it's quite a bridge and the St. John wasn't over isn't overflowing its banks right now Uh, but I say that because it would have caused an entire nation to stand there and look at the impossible and yet God was going to say trust me by the way that's what God does all the time he just says trust me he wants you to trust him he wants me to trust him he wants me to trust him in the impossible things that lay ahead including the most ultimate impossible thing which is victory over death itself because death is coming and because we who are sinners Uh, we get paid by what we do and what we are and the wages of sin is death that's what the bible says and so that's an impossible thing you can't overcome that and yet god can and we know that after three days jesus rose again well the position of a believer is one actually in the new testament we're commanded to die to ourself and we need to come to a place where we realize that the, the Christian life, the life of a believer, is not one that you can live in the flesh. And if you have any confidence in the flesh, God has a marvelous way of stripping that away from us, doesn't he? Sometimes it's just through the aging process as our bodies weaken and things that were used to work don't work anymore, right? And all of a sudden we realize that we're weak and we need him. The impossibles. Well... Colossians chapter 3, Paul picks up on that and he says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting, sitting at the right hand of God. We are to look forward, not to the challenges that are in front of us so much, but to the one who overcomes challenges, right? Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For, look what he says, you died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. See, there's a theological position that Paul is claiming here when he says, you have died with Christ. Now, he's, he's talking to people who are breathing and living and actually you, took, you could take their pulse. But he's saying positionally, you died when Christ died. And if indeed you're part of his and you've believed in him, because your sins were taken and placed on Jesus. And he became your sin bearer. He became your atonement. He became the one who reconciles you and me between God and us and our sin. He took it. He's our Savior. We 
very much died positionally with Christ. And your life now is in Christ. So what's the practical part? When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's the truth. That's looking ahead. Someday we win. Someday this this world and all its challenges will be no longer in our minds. We will be with him in glory. Therefore, and anytime you see a word that says therefore in the Bible, ask what it is there for. All right? It's a very simple Bible interpretation method. See, therefore, why is it therefore? Right? All right. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. That doesn't mean going out and cutting off arms and legs and killing people. That's not what it's talking about. But it's putting off the acts of the flesh. Fornication. That's uh, sexuality outside of the confines of marriage, which is a beautiful thing. God made us sexual beings. Uh, He made us, though, with, with rules to enjoy. And yet... How much of our world is just filled with immorality associated with sexuality and has cheapened it in in all reality. It's cheapened that whole um, marvelous institution that God has made and has given a husband and a wife together and said, enjoy. And we cheapen it. If we would just do what God wants us to do. How about uncleanness, a passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. When you worship something to want it even, that's what covetousness is, like saying, I want that, I want that, it is considered idolatry because you're putting it ahead of God. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Paul says, unbelievers, that's how they walk. People who are outside of Christ, that's how they walk. And you can expect that in a world that is filled with lots of evil and uncleanness and things like that. We should not be surprised by that. What we should be surprised is when believers claim, you know, that know the Lord, decide they're going to follow that course. Be careful. But now you yourselves are to put off these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man and his deeds. But look what he says. He doesn't leave us naked. You know, he says, take this off. But he says, put this on. Right? And he says, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in the knowledge according to the image of him who created him. He's referring to Christ. Put on Christ. Put off the old and put on the new. And really, that's what we're commanded to do. That's part of being ready, by the way being ready it's really the imagery and elsewhere paul uses it as well to be prepared in various ways and part of it a lot of times paul would use military imagery um you know thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of jesus christ he says in second timothy 2 3 and he says he that wars does not entangle himself with the affairs of this life that it may please him who has chosen him to be a soldier i'd like that we're called to walk differently just as a soldier has to put on a uniform and put on armor and use the weapons of his training and has to go to battle with those things so ought the christian be ready to contend in this world and be victorious in christ 
Romans chapter 6 says this, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. He's not talking about water baptism here. He's talking about spiritual baptism in Christ and identification with Christ. When you were saved, when you believed, you were baptized by the Holy Spirit. And that's a positional thing. You died with Christ. Water baptism pictures that. When we go out into the water and a believer wants to follow the Lord in believer's baptism, they go down into the water symbolizing death. And then they come up symbolizing newness of life, walking in Him. And it is a declaration publicly what has already gone on inwardly, hidden in the heart, really, Uh, that should show itself that way we're called to be ready to put off and to put on if you aren't you can't enter in and be victorious in canaan that's what god tells joshua and joshua tells the people well we have a challenge to be ready and there's lots of those kind of challenges in scripture i mean go right through the bible look up verses on readiness there's lots of them we are to have a ready mind and we're to do those things we're to be ready to give an answer to the hope that's within us i mean there's lots of things we can be ready for and that means it takes preparation they were called to make provisions in other words get your stuff in order for in three days you're going in then there was a challenge to be responsible a challenge to be responsible look at verse 12 And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua spoke, saying, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is giving you rest and is giving you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in in the land which Moses gave you on this side of Jordan, but you shall pass before your brethren, armed, all your mighty men of valor, and help them, until the Lord has given your brethren rest, as he gave you. And they also have taken possession of the land which the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and enjoy it, which Moses the Lord's servant gave you on the, this side of the Jordan toward the sunrise. You have here, again, I mentioned it earlier, uh, these three tribes, or two and a half, half a tribe of Manasseh, and they, they wanted to settle on the east side of Jordan. Canaan was on the west side of Jordan. And at first, really, I mean, when we'll read it in the book of Numbers. When they decided to do that, it was because they had their eyes on the land. And they looked at the land and they said, this is a good place to have livestock. By the way, sometimes we settle for second best. There are lots of good things in this world, and I mean that. But sometimes we don't really want to do it all in accordance to God. And, you know, I will tell you this, God sometimes allows us to do that. And we might suffer the consequences of that further down. God doesn't, sometimes I wish he would, just put a wall right there and you couldn't go, right? A hedge. And he would guard you from doing those things. And there are times he does, amen, for that. He directs our paths and our steps. But he also, um, as the Bible says, the, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And some have said the stops of a good man are ordered by the Lord too. Sometimes we have to stop. But there are times God says, okay, if you really want to do that, I'm going to let you do that. And God will even sometimes bless in those things. And yet, how much more a blessing it might have been if we'd have walked by faith fully and stepped out fully. How much more would we have seen? And I'm often, I think of that with 
the tribe of Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh, how much more they could have entered into rest and possession and good land had they gone in to Canaan. Numbers chapter 32 is the account of that. Now the children of Reuben and the children of Gad had very great multitude of livestock. And when they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, that indeed the region was a place for livestock, the children of Gad and the children of Reuben came and spoke to Moses, to Eleazar the priest, and to the leaders of the congregation, saying, and then it says, uh, Ateroth, Dibon, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Eli, Sheba, Nebo, and Beon, the country which the Lord defeated before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock. And your servants have livestock. <laughs> they, they see this land that's on the east side of Jordan, and they see that it's, it's good land. But their eyes are on the land. And Moses reminds them that an entire generation died in the wilderness because they didn't believe God. Sometimes we need a solemn reminder like that. And so they make a pledge. And we pick it up in Numbers chapter 32 verse 16. Then they came near to him. That's Moses. And they said. We will build sheepfolds here for our livestock. And cities for our little ones. But we ourselves will be armed. Ready to go before the children of Israel. Until we have brought them to their place. And our little ones will dwell in the fortified cities. Because of the inhabitants of the land. And we read there, they make a pledge that was a very practical one. They said, we're going to build fortified cities and we're going to make sheep you know, pens and, and put our livestock in there and we're going to go out and we're going to help our brothers. And they meant it. They meant it and God honored that. <coughs> However, it really was a, a partial step of obedience because really what God wanted is for them to all go into the land. But they settled for second best. Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 18, says this. I'm going to get my water here. Uh, then I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All you men of valor shall cross over armed before your brethren, the children of Israel. But your wives, your little ones, and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall stay in your cities, which I have given you. Until the Lord has given rest to your brethren as to you, and they also possess the land which the Lord your God is giving them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession which I have given you. And again, I say you had somewhat of a partial obedience to things. And it pictures with us sort of the believer who, well, sits on the fence, you know, and looks out and says, yeah, there's challenges, and I'll probably go participate in that, but I really like settling here. Someone put it this way, that Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh were more concerned about making a living than making a life. By the way, if you're more concerned about making a living than walking the Christian life, you will always settle for second best. It doesn't mean God can't do both in your life. I mean, you might be very happy with your career and making a living and the things and decisions you've made and all that. But I say this, put God first. And the Bible says that uh, 
without faith it is impossible to what? Please him. Please God. Without faith. He wants us to live by faith. And the just shall live by his faith. That's Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. It's quoted three times in the New Testament. Important verse. You have here a picture of those who did not want to enter in fully to what God had for them. I think there's a little bit of Gad and Reuben and Manasseh in all of us. Sometimes there are times when I want to go and do what God wants me to do. And I look around and I think, but, but it would mean I have to do this and get rid of that. And I have this invested and I have that. Sometimes it's a lot easier when we don't have those things. And I mean that. I remember early on in my, our marriage when we were just married and Sandy and I had very little possessions and, and no money in the bank or anything like that. And it seemed like if God put his finger on something to do for ministry, we just did it. And now it's a lot more complicated. Sometimes I have to pause and say, okay, God, no, please help me live by faith. In this age we live, whatever that is, it looks different 30 years into it now, almost 30 years. And I think, wow, you know, and God, it's important because there's a generation that's following us that's going to say, I want what they have, not the things, I hope. Oh, boy, I don't have a lot of things I'm going to give them, just so you guys know. But I, I tell you, this, this stuff will probably go in the dumpster. Uh, but, but I'll tell you that, it's the things of faith that we pass on that make an eternal difference. Makes an eternal difference. And there's no better time to start walking in obedience than now. Whether you've been a believer a long time, whether you haven't, whether you maybe have not even believed. If you haven't believed, that's the first step of obedience. Obey the gospel call. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And by the way, if you do not believe, you're being disobedient. And there's no other way of salvation. None. There's no plan B. There's only God's plan A. That's it. Through Christ. Interestingly enough, in the history of Israel, when they became a divided nation and the Assyrians came in and attacked later on, the first tribes to be carried off into captivity were Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. They were defeated first. And if you are digging your feet in real deep in this earth, you will be sadly disappointed when defeat comes, right? Well, there's a challenge to be ready, a challenge to be responsible. That's really what we're talking about there. We are to be responsible with what he's given us to do that. But there's also a challenge to be committed, a challenge to be committed. Look what he says. So then, or so they, the people, answered Joshua saying, All that you command us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. By the way, that's quite a hefty commitment. They are saying just that. Everything you say and, and wherever you want us to go, we're going to do it. As, as unto God, really, because he was the commander that God had given them. They made quite a pledge. Sometimes we're quick to make pledges, by the way. 
They would never actually fully obey that. But they meant it. I think in their hearts they wanted to do that. And sometimes we're sincere about various oaths. And yet we might fall down when it comes to fulfilling them fully. God is gracious. Glad he lets us get right back up on our feet again and go on. Because there wouldn't be one of us that could stand up here or sit wherever in a church and, and say, God, is there any hope for me? Because we never in this life probably fully obey. And yet he wants us to. And for those times where we do and you should, and I'm, commi- I'm, I'm encouraging you, walk as close as you can to him. It's worth it. If not in this life, in the next they answered Joshua, all that you command us, we will do, and wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we heeded Moses in all things, so we will heed you. Only the Lord your God be with you, as he was with Moses. And there was a commitment here from the people. They were committing themselves to God through Joshua. And the first part of the commitment was really a commitment of a life of surrender. They were saying, we give up what we want to do and we will follow you i think that's a good commitment to have when it comes before the lord are you willing to do what he asks you to do and go where he wants you to go those are big things and you have to surrender and it's interesting because the theme of the book of joshua is victory and conquering in canaan and to conquer canaan you have to first be willing to surrender For the Christian, that's how you're victorious. You have to surrender. Not surrender to the world, surrender to the devil, but surrender yourself to God. In all things, by the way, the Bible says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Right? Matthew 6.33. If we seek him, he fixes the rest, doesn't he? Well, there are a lot of accounts of that. and, And we're actually talking here about the the idea of a disciple someone who follows the lord and wants to follow him rightly and closely there were lots of people that wanted to follow christ in his day for various reasons i can only imagine some of them were probably because like he was a miracle man right he performed miracles and some thought hey let's let's follow this it's an entertainment factor let's see the blind see and and the deaf hear and the lame walk and maybe they were just wanting to see a new miracle some people are out there in in christianity and that's what they want they just want to see some kind of the entertainment factor i call it it wasn't jesus being an entertainer by the way he was being god the son the miracles weren't about the person or the act even it was about jesus some disciples got that some followed him i'm talking about you know followers at a distance some of them just followed him to see whatever it is some were hungry they wanted to follow him because maybe he's going to make bread (laughs) some for whatever reasons others thought he's a great political figure you know the messiah he's here and he's going to take care of rome read through the gospels and see how many times jesus gets political not very often except to say when you have to pay your taxes pay them (laughs) he didn't come to overthrow rome his kingdom is not of this world people don't get it sometimes luke chapter 9 is one of those occasions it says this 
in verse 57. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He says, you willing to be homeless? Now, it doesn't mean Jesus always slept out in the elements, but it meant that he did not have a home, an earthly home, that he could say, you know, put his little uh, family name on and and mailbox and everything. No, he wandered. (laughs) Then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Look what Jesus says about that. And this always shocked me when I first read this. Let, Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and preach the kingdom of God. I don't think Jesus was um, making less of the fact that we ought to bury our dead. I think there's an honoring in, in burying somebody properly and, and a funeral and all of that. But listen, the, the image here is this, that sometimes we cling to the dead and we don't move on. All the people in Joshua's generation that had come out of Egypt had died except for Joshua and Caleb. Two people. And now Moses dies. And now Moses, my servant, is dead. If Joshua had clung to Moses, and that's why I think and the Bible tells us that God took care of the body of Moses, right? That because that, I think that's our, our desire. Sometimes we just want to cling to the past, cling to the, that which can never bring life. He says, go and preach the kingdom of God. There's actually something more important than even that. It's the, you know, preaching the, the kingdom, more important than burying our dead. And another said, also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. How many times we are stuck in the bidding people farewell part, right? And we choose not to follow the Lord, but we're always constantly just saying, well, I got this to take care of. I got this to take care of. I got to say one more goodbye, one more goodbye. Someday you will say goodbye for the final time. And maybe others will come now and say goodbye to you at that point. But don't live your life always saying goodbye and not moving out and doing and going where you have to go. But it says in verse 62, Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. There's a principle here of discipleship. It's costly in that it sometimes it, it, it gets into even the most personal matters of life if you're going to follow the Lord. And he says in the regard to, he uses that imagery of someone plowing a field and I love it in the spring when you come through the St. John Valley and the fields have just been freshly plowed and you look out there and all those straight rows. Every now and again, though, you see where somebody made a mistake or they had a little breakdown or I don't know. It's like, oh, you know, they missed a row. But most times, just really, really straight. And that comes, see, I don't plow fields because I probably couldn't do it, right? But you farmers, you know what that's like. And the way you plow is looking ahead. Remember when I was a little kid, my dad, uh, my dad's a great artist, and, and he can draw about anything, at least that's the way I think. And he was, I always was fascinated, my dad could draw a perfectly straight line across a piece of paper. And like a ruler, you know, and when it was done, and he'd draw a box, and it would, it would just look, wow, and I'd say, 
I'd say, uh, Dad, how, how do you draw a straight line? He says, well, look where you're going to go. So we'd look at the end of the, where he wants to put the line. He'd, he'd make it straight to that point. And I thought, that's a great principle. Most of us draw lines by looking at the point of our pencil or looking where we were and say, oh, that's not right. I've got to correct it. Oh, oh, you know. And we come out all crooked. Jesus wants people who will not just be caught up in the now and the past, but looking ahead to him. Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, right? That's what the book of Hebrews says. That's how we're to live. That doesn't mean you're so heavenly minded you're no earthly good, right? We have a life to live here, we do that. But our life ought to be one that's straight on the path with him. And as we encounter people on that path, they'll see it. They'll see a difference. We're no longer to live to ourselves. It's a life of surrender. It's a life of submission. Submission. James chapter 4. Very simple principle. And by the way, the book of James, a wonderful book. It's just someone, I think it was Wearsby, who said, it's Christianity in coveralls. <laughs> you wear coveralls when you're at work. And Christianity working itself out in the world. And part of the aspect of that is our relationship to God. And he says, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So many believers are caught up by being defeated by the enemy, defeated by the devil, and it's mostly, many of them, because they refuse to submit to God. We just need to submit to him. Submit. That's hard to do, isn't it? Submitting. Perhaps you heard of the, back in the days of the battleships and, and the... the uh, time of great vessels of naval naval vessels out there on the sea but the story goes that one day there was a cat or night there was a captain of a ship he looked out into the dark night and he saw faint light in the distance and it was on his course he immediately told his signalman to send a signal alter your course 10 degrees south promptly a return message was received alter your course 10 degrees north Captain was angered at his command that it had been ignored, and so he sent a second message. Alter your course 10 degrees south. I am the captain. Soon another message was received. Alter your course 10 degrees north. I am a seaman third class, Jones. Immediately the captain sent a third message, knowing the fear it would evoke. Alter your course 10 degrees south. I am a battleship. Then the reply came, Alter your course 10 degrees north. I am a lighthouse. (laughs) Sometimes we are headed to the shore in disaster and we want it to move out of the way. Listen, submit to God. When you submit to Him, He directs your steps and your paths and your guidance. It's a lot easier. Too many of us are battleships, aren't we? The principles in scripture is very simple. Again, in James chapter 4, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. You know, if you're going to go through life as a battleship, you'll find that you're just going to end up shipwrecked. But if you go through life humble in the Lord, he will lift you up. He'll put you in the right place. That's the principle that we are to follow. There's another principle, and it's really the principle of, of separation. And this is, I want to end with this, but just, we're called to be separated from the world around us. 
And again, that doesn't mean isolated. It doesn't mean we all join a monastery. All right? But isolated. And I mean that like we are to, or not isolated, but separated. We're to be really living the way we ought to live as God's children. 1 Corinthians says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Whoa, newsflash. You're not your own if you're a Christian. You're not your own. For you were bought at a price. You mean I was bought? Does that make me a slave? Yeah, it does. <laughs> you were bought. How much, did I, how much was I worth? Let me tell you, you were worth the blood of Jesus Christ. You were worth the life of God the Son. That's how much you were worth. It's a lot. By the way, I think it was C.S. Lewis said this. He says not that he found in Scripture the idea that slavery is, um, is to be abolished or something like that. I'm paraphrasing. He wrote much better than I can speak. But, but he said it's not that uh, slavery isn't out there or something like that. But he said this. It's the fact that there are no good masters that really make slavery an aberration. He said the only good slave is the one who is submitted to Christ because he's the perfect master. Paul, the apostle, writes that he was a bondservant. A willing slave is really what that means. Someone who loved his master. And the fact is not that you're not going to be a slave because we're a slave to something or someone whether we know it or not. You're either a slave to the world a slave to the devil himself, or you're a slave to the perfect master and good one, which is Christ. The call of discipleship. It was a call for uh, separation. And he was told, for you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We don't really have the right to live the only way we want to live. He knows best. And then lastly, Joshua 1.18. Whoever rebels against your command and does not heed your words in all that you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and of a good courage. And by the way, the, uh, thankfully the Lord did not always put someone to death as soon as they disobeyed. Or else there would probably be nowhere to walk on earth because of the tombstones. He was gracious. He's always been gracious and merciful. But the way of death is the way of sin. The way of sin is the way of death. Those two go together. And we are reminded of that. They were reminded as well that whoever rebelled against God, that was their chief end, is one of separation from God and each other. And they lose it all. Well, I think the secret to the book of Joshua and the Christian life as we walk it can be summed up in this quote from Andrew Murray. He said, God is ready to assume full responsibility for the life wholly yielded to him. Aren't you glad that God is willing to assume all that responsibility? How about you stop assuming all the responsibility? I'll try to do the same. Let's pray. God, we are grateful, grateful for your word. We pray you bless it to us today and as we walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.